Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, the fall of Kabul and how the press covers moral failings in policy. So we all have a pretty good sense in our minds about what happened in Afghanistan at the end of last summer. We saw the videos of of people crowding the airport, of planes taking off, and of these massive groups of people trying to get out of the country. And and the, the sort of narrative, at least in my mind, that's been created is that this was all a massive screw up by the Americans and a bungling and that the whole thing was sort of botched at the end, which is bad. But what if it wasn't just that? What if it was also a result of kind of intentional policy choices made over years and all the way up to the president? And what would that mean in terms of how we think about the way it was covered and about how do we cover this question of like moral choices that are made in government and policy and the press? So I'm really thrilled to be joined today by George Packer, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic and has written an amazing piece for the magazine called The Betrayal that looked at this very question about how we think about that last chapter of the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. George, thank you so much for coming on. It's really good to be here. Thanks, Kyle. Did I characterize the sort of the general sense, do you think, fairly in the way that this had was widely perceived at the time, which was that it was just a it was a screw up? Yeah, I think that the images coming from the Kabul airport were so um, vivid and disturbing that most onlookers just saw that it was a terrible thing um, and that a lot of human suffering resulted and that the Biden administration was caught almost completely off guard by the fall of Kabul and the rush mm-hmm. to the airport. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the thing that's hard to do, especially if you're covering it while it's going on, is to connect those images and stories to the months and years preceding and to understand how it came to that. And that's what I tried to do with um, the betrayal. I had been writing about, well, really about um, Afghan and Iraqi allies, special immigrant visa applicants and others for years, um, starting in Iraq and then Afghanistan, and then covering a few Afghans throughout last year as I watched them try to get visas before the Taliban took over and their struggles and basically their failures to get visas. So I was sort of in a position to see the airport scenes in the context of uh, a longer story that goes back before Biden. Right. Um, but just to, if we could just let's start with Biden and then work backwards. <laughs> um, because what your piece did, I thought, which was so devastating, frankly, was showed that there was real intentionality on the part of not only the Biden administration, but the president himself in term in 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 drawing a line and saying the past this point, we have nothing, no help to offer these people anymore. Um, and he was getting like enormous pressure or, or, or pleas from people um, who were familiar with the scene. And he was just saying no. Um, and you've traced it all the way back to his experience around Vietnam, but like um, 
that to me was sort of stunning because I had sort of bought into the idea that he inherited this deadline from Trump, um, which everyone felt sort of had boxed him in and he was just doing the best that he could. But that's not the way that you portrayed it. He did inherit a deadline from Trump and was faced with a really difficult decision, um, either uh, break the deadline and risk the resumption of combat between American and Taliban forces um, or make the deadline, which actually was May 1st. He couldn't make yeah. it first. That was too soon. But at least let the Taliban and the world know we are on the way out. And he chose the latter. And there are good arguments for that choice. He was also boxed in by something else that he inherited, which was a broken visa system, a broken refugee program um, that Trump had deliberately broken because he and Stephen Miller and others didn't want to be bringing Afghan refugees into the United States, Muslim refugees into the United States. So the special immigrant visa program, which is for Afghans who work directly for the U.S. government or military, um, a lot of them interpreters, some of them combat interpreters, they trickled down to nearly zero in the last um, year of the Trump administration, partly because of COVID, but partly because of policy. So by the time Biden took office, that program, which was the one way for Afghans in danger to get to the United States, was pretty much at a standstill with 18,000 applicants and tens of thousands of their family members standing in a line that wasn't moving. So Biden had both of those things. Once Biden announced the end of the war in April, though, um, there were many things his administration could have done to both accelerate the visas and to start getting people out because the time was going to be really short. I think once Biden made that announcement, um, the fate of Afghanistan was sealed. It was only a matter of time. The question was how much time. The administration at first thought they had maybe uh, a year and a half and then nine months mm -hmm. and then less than that. It kept dwindling as we got further into spring and summer and the Taliban offensive began taking bigger and bigger pieces of Afghanistan. And, the, and yet they still didn't take urgent action. What they did was they uh, surged some personnel into the visa program to get those visas um, processed more quickly, but they never really considered throwing out the old bureaucratic method and just getting airlifts to get people out. Um, and that was a political decision, a policy decision. And I do think it really went up to the top. And there is a history in Biden's record of a kind of blind spot or coldness even when it comes to the moral claims of desperate people in countries where we have fought long losing wars, the obvious precedent being Vietnam. And what is that blind spot? Is it that, I mean, to put, put it bluntly, is it that you're the, you lost and, and, you know, we have to move on? Um, because there's something, you, you had an interesting line in your piece about uh, that referenced Biden's um, son who died um, and who was in the service. And somebody had told you, if I remember this right, that, you know, that, that Biden would view this differently if he were around to advise him. Isn't that what you said? Yeah, there was a, a whole coalition of advocates who were really pushing hard to get the administration to start evacuations in April. And these were veterans. They were uh, humanitarian activists, refugee 
advocates, and they had very good connections with the administration because Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, and John Finer, the Deputy National Security Advisor, were friends with these people and had been on the boards of their organizations. So there was a sense that they had the right officials at the top of the administration to get this done. And they simply couldn't get it done. They couldn't get the administration to listen to the urgent appeals and to say, yeah, we'd better start evacuating. And they, the advocates could not understand what the holdup was. And I think some of them finally began to realize it was the president. And one of the advocates, a retired army colonel, um, who had access to Jill Biden, that wasn't in my story, but he actually had a way to contact her and got no answer there. He said to me, if only Bo were still alive, Bo Biden, I feel that he could have explained to his father why this mattered so much, particularly to veterans who had connections with Afghan interpreters and who had a code of not leaving them behind and why this would be so damaging to the morale of those veterans who were now seeing not just a 20-year war ending with what can only be called a loss, but a dishonorable ending in which we'd be leaving behind people who risk their lives uh, with Americans. And that is the blind spot that um, that I think Biden, that, that caused Biden not to understand the importance of the issue and instead to fall back on, I think you're right, Kyle, a kind of the hell with it. We fought there. They didn't fight for themselves. We put in so much blood and treasure. Um, we owe them nothing. That was his attitude toward Vietnamese refugees. And it was kind of his attitude on Afghanistan. I think he, had, he was done with Afghanistan. And, and those appeals fell on deaf ears. So your piece was is the latest in a series of what I thought had been amazing pieces of journalism about this event. There was a piece in the New York Times Magazine. There was a piece uh, by Eliza Griswold in The New Yorker. Um, but the, uh, and in your piece, I sort of, I hope you're not offended that I lumped them together. In the way not that at I, all. That's pretty good company. The way that I think about this, but like, and everybody is sort of, you know, doing similar work to sort of say like, um, how, s- systemically, like, how was this so badly missed? And it does it does make me want to put on my press critic hat and ask you to do the same and sort of look at the coverage. Cause I, I got to say, like, I followed this pretty closely. I was pretty interested in it, as, you know, as it was unfolding last spring into the summer and then finally into August and the tenor of what you all have been reporting in these, in these look back pieces was not reflected in the daily press that I saw. And I wonder if you thought this, think the same thing and why that is. You know, there there was press coverage in the spring and summer of calls for evacuations, and some of that was in the form of op-eds, and it kind of reached a crescendo in July when the Biden administration began to realize it was running into a catastrophe, and then they started some very belated and small-scale flights of of Afghans who already had their visas. Um, but I think you're right that the, the focus was much more on the decision to end the war and the arguments about that decision. And this issue got a little bit lost in those arguments and maybe even distorted by them. And what I remember, Kyle, in August, 
when the airport became this scene of trauma was a, a media fight over who was to blame and, um, and what it meant and why people were criticizing it. And there were a lot of administration defenders yeah. who were saying it was always going to be messy. It was Trump's fault. Or you critics just wanted this war to go on forever, which is something I heard a few times. And that one in particular, I can tell you, really bothered the advocates that were urging evacuations all the way back to April, because most of them, I can say, wanted the war to end um, and saw this issue as being a, a separate moral issue about national obligations and character and to be accused of in some way cynically exploiting the trauma and um, having a uh, an ulterior motive of simply having more Americans die in a hopeless cause. These For veterans especially, this was a pretty painful and even offensive charge. I mean, what was so... I thought what was so moving about your piece was this moral question that you just raised. And it just, it just had me thinking about, you know, how do we think about moral questions in such a divided partisan time? So, I mean, I think of morals as kind of nonpartisan, right? Um, that's the goal, but somehow, and, and, and the morality of like, you can't abandon people who have risked their lives in your service it seems to be a nonpartisan question. Um, but as you point out, in the end, it, was, it wasn't. It was turned into something else. Um, and I, I don't know. This is sort of a meandering thought, but it's like it does sort of make me wonder, like, in, in, even in, in, in our press, like, how do we, is, can we, can we find a way to separate these two things? You know, in August, I was involved to some extent in some of the efforts to get Afghans out, um, not nearly as much as my friend Eliza Griswold and Dexter Filkins and others. And it did seem as if there was a dividing line between Americans who had a personal connection to Afghanistan and those who didn't. Um, it was harder to see the moral imperative, the debt, uh, and why it had absolutely had to be paid, how, how dishonorable and terrible it would be not to pay if you didn't actually have a particular person in mind who you were thinking about and what it would mean for them to be left behind and for them to face uh, retaliation by uh, the Taliban. But in those weeks of evacuation, the, the efforts to get people out were wonderfully nonpartisan. It was the only time in recent years when I have felt like I could have conversations with people on the the far right and not want to walk away or get into a fight because this issue seemed to to close that gap completely. And what I found was, you know, you had Glenn Beck and George Soros both funding private charters. You had um Tom Cotton and um, Jason Crow and Gene Shaheen and um, all sorts of Republicans and Democrats and mainly their staffers on the Hill, Tom Malinowski, Richard Blumenthal, turning their offices into operations centers and working with 
uh, veterans and with humanitarians across ideological divides. And the, the one way to get yourself to become very unpopular during that time was to start talking about politics. It was yeah. absolutely forbidden in these, these chat groups that were part of the unofficial networks of, of the evacuation to talk politics because the, the whole point was this is, should not be about politics. That's something Peter Meyer, the Michigan Republican, said to me that there was a bipartisan coalition of House members urging early evacuations back in April. He said, it shouldn't be that hard. This should not be partisan. But of course it became partisan because everything does. And mainly it became partisan in the finger pointing and the blame casting with the left defending Biden and the right accusing Biden of abandoning thousands of Americans in Afghanistan, which I think is a false story. Um, and, and then eventually the right accusing him of bringing a lot of unvetted and potentially dangerous Afghans into this country, which is sort of an ironic thing to hear given the pressure to, to do the evacuation. So yeah, it, it, it fell into that trap, but there was a wonderful period, wonderful only in this way, when Americans were working together, ordinary citizens, officials, veterans, active duty military, in one cause and and truly working together. Um, you mentioned that you've covered this conflict um, in the Iraq conflict and others uh, over the years and the decades. Um, how did this reporting this story and working with these people in such peril sort of, um, I mean, you've, you've witnessed other people um, at risk, um, even because of American actions, but did this one hit you in a different way than others have in the past? This one was emotionally wrenching and riveting and, um, strangely because I wasn't in Kabul. I was yeah, in. I want, to, I want to ask you about how you reported this. <laughs> Finish your thought. Finish your yeah, thought. yeah. I will, I'll hold that. But I was in Iraq talking to Iraqis who were in danger. I was not in Afghanistan. I was here in the U.S. traveling around, interviewing people. Um, but it was absolutely consuming, partly because I was, I don't think there's any group of people I've ever admired more than the Americans who were up every night and day spending time and money to get people out, sometimes whom they didn't even know, and the Afghans who, with their children, were at the gates of the airport um, risking their lives to, to save their lives. For those two groups of people uh, absolutely um, riveted my admiration. And in a way, it's hard to write about people who you just unqualifiedly admire. What's Where's the tension? Where's the conflict? But that was that didn't matter. The, the This story was so moving. The love, really, it's not too strong a word, between, for example, a, a woman army captain, U.S. Army captain, mm -hmm. and her mm -hmm. Afghan counterpart as she tried to navigate her into the airport um, was one of the most powerful stories I've ever um, been around. And the other part of what seized me was my, to use a, a bit of an understatement, my disappointment in the Biden administration and people who I expected to do this better. Um, and, and so we, you had, you know, sort of the angry investigative reporter side of things in Washington connected to the dramatic, 
and very human and emotionally very uh, powerful story of the airport and the the strange situation of people with their phones thousands of miles away um, navigating other people into these gates and out of the country. Yeah, I mean, there's this one scene in your piece about um, somebody literally like looking at a Google map and telling people which alley to walk down as they're trying to get to the airport. Um, you know, one of the things that your piece, I, I don't get a clear picture of and the other pieces either is like, you know, the, 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 the administration people who, who screwed up here um, and, and executed this failure. Um, I haven't read any sense of now that they have a few months under of time, um, whether there's any introspection or any sense of like, um, you know, my God, what happened? I mean, I, I don't see any of that yet. Is it, they're not, they're not saying that to anybody. I interviewed uh, Secretary Blinken um, on the record, and um, he told me that he was doing what sounded like a pretty serious review of what happened um, and a, a pretty serious attempt to learn something from it. He came under a lot of criticism, not just from outsiders, but from his own people. There was a lot of unhappiness at the State Department. He held town halls with traumatized diplomats, consular officers who'd come back from Kabul and had to answer a lot of very hard questions. And I talked to State Department people, including one who was willing to speak on the record, who were just livid over the administration's failures because many of them had connections to Afghanistan. So I think the State Department, they gave me a lot of access. I got to talk to a lot of people. And I think that was partly partly because maybe they felt they didn't have much to lose because they've been so beat up about this, but partly because I think they are in a more introspective state. The White House, no one would speak on the record. And the background interviews I did did not give me the feeling that they're ready to um, to take a hard look. It was very defensive and very much here's here's the reasons why we did what we did. And I defy you to um, to say that they're uh, that you would have done differently in my place. Yeah, the um, what you just said about Blinken taking a look at this reminds me of a line from your own story about the summer and somebody saying, like, another study is just a way to sort of kill this thing, right? I hope that's not what Blinken is doing. I, and I, I don't, I didn't get the feeling it is. I think he, mm. you know, Blinken is a refugee advocate from way back and mm. and so are others at the White House. And I just have to think that this hurts, that that having in some ways failed this huge historic test has to really trouble them. And I'm sure it does, but you know, they're in high political office and um, they're basically moving on. And, and really to this point, Kyle, what they could do to show that they've learned from it is to actually start uh, evacuating more people now because yeah. there's a pretty desperate situation in Afghanistan, not just the humanitarian catastrophe and famine, but the effort to get people out has ground to a halt and there are still tens of thousands who are at risk. So in a way, the the proof of their 
good faith would be if we started seeing Afghans leaving again in pretty good numbers. And we're not seeing that. And that, in a way, that's the thing that bothers me the most right now. So before we wrap up, did you consider going or did you try to go to Kabul time to this, knowing that it was going to be dramatic and something you'd be interested in? Or or were you always intent on reporting this from the U.S.? I was thinking about going in, uh, I think, mid to late July. In fact, Jeff Goldberg and I, um, The Atlantic, talked about it. And I talked to some people in Kabul. And it really did seem like it might be the stupidest thing I could do because it was so hard to know what the Taliban were going to do with um, with people like foreign journalists. And to dive into a city I don't really know very well without a whole lot of connections and resources, um, and then to find myself trapped there if the airport closed and the fighting uh, took over the city, I finally decided not to do it. I regret that <laughs> because now it seems like I could have gone and um, could have been allowed to report because it was clear that the Taliban were not going to um, be shooting foreign journalists um, in front of the world. And I, I, I think I would have had an even more dramatic story, although I also wouldn't have, in some ways, wouldn't have seen the story in quite the same way. I wouldn't have understood the connections between the people in this country and the Afghans that I was writing about. Um, which to me was the most important thing about trying to report and write what I did was to see it as a, a multifaceted, multi-perspective story from Washington policymakers and advocates to ordinary people in their homes with their phones to those Afghans I wrote about who were desperately trying to get to the airport. So how did you do this though? Like, um, how did there, there are moments in the piece when you're describing, um, the, you know, somebody, um, you know, I remember one scene where the, the dad of the family gets into the airport, his kids aren't with him. He's calling around like, where the hell are the kids? And people are trying to help him. And he's looking for this person, you know, the particular person he's been told to look for the, there's a, a man, of granular detail. How did you like that? Just take that moment. Like, how did you do that? That was Najib Monawari, who was an interpreter with the Green Berets for four years um, and who spent 10 years trying to get a special immigrant visa and being turned down unfairly. I went to Toronto, where he now is uh, a resident, and spent two days in the airport Holiday Inn, where his family was you know, being sheltered with a whole bunch of other Afghan refugees. And we just went through it in in minute detail. And then I called him a few times after that and we kept going through it and I kept having more questions and harassing him because I couldn't quite picture where he was when he... Did he have video? Did he have cell phone video? No, no. It was just me asking again and again, where was the concertina wire? Where was your wife? Where was the American soldier? Who was in front of you? How many, how far away were they? Uh, Was it hot? what was the person next to you doing to you? You know, just again and again. And he never said, why are you asking me all this? He just kept trying to give me the clearest answers because I think he also understood that this is 
this is how he wanted his story to be told. He was giving it to me as he lived it. And, um, and I'm incredibly grateful to him. Well, it's an amazing piece of work. Um, thank you, George. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure, Kyle. Thank you. Um, you can follow CJR's coverage of all of this at CJR.org through our daily email, the media today and on social media. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>